Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, from 2001, join performance poets Sari Barford and Glenn Colhoun as they celebrate their working class roots on the Going West Oblivion Express steaming its way to Helensville Station. Hello, um, we're going to do a tandem act here. Um, I'm, my collection is called Westy File and I wrote it because I felt that the working class is underrepresented in poetry. It's very hard to find, yes, uh, working class experiences on the shelves in, in poetry. And so I thought, well, stuff this. And so here we go. I've taken the perspective of a Tusitala, which is Samoan for storyteller. My mother is German Samoan. And I thought I'd start with a poem, and it's called Post-World War II Suburbs, just setting the scene of people pouring into West Auckland. Heroic nationalism gave way to nuclear families, cloned houses, avenues devoid of trees. Heroes no longer fighting for king and country, slogged for wages, a personal plot of subdivided utopia. Concrete driveways with a mowing strip, an erection of boundary fences, telegraph poles with highly strung wires linking families to the main line. Something for kids to hide behind, birds to perch on, dogs to lift a leg against, fibrolitant wood, brick and tile boxes we called home. How the West filled up. Dreams and baggage from Europe, the Balkans, the Middle East. How we poured in. Māori moving to town, Polynesian labourers, Asians with vegetables, men with blue collars and rugby balls, women with cardigans and aprons to protect them from cold wars, fallout, ornamental ducks flying up walls, past mirrors over fireplaces reflecting wrought iron and magazine racks, formica bench tops, white swan vases, swimming glass, coffee tables, stuffed with bird of paradise, leaves and flowers, tropically brilliant to complement African faces hanging in the wall, just two, him facing her, I never knew their names, though I often ran the narrow passage at night to the biggest bowl in the house, left unflushed till morning, lest it woke whoever was sleeping in the end room next to the neighbours we borrowed cups of sugar from for cakes, bulking out school lunches jammed into bread bags on the way out of the pride and joy new front door, a glass stag flinging his antlers towards the recently tar-sealed road. Black perambulators rolled over on their way to the post office for the family benefit, buying shoes on lay-by, fish and chips on Friday, a supply of taro and green bananas and coconut cream for my homesick mum. Kia ora everyone, that's a hard act to follow. I'm going to read you a, um, a poem that's sort of in a similar vein, but I... I I'm a South Auckland boy, so I think today, 
I think I think today I've been talking to Cherie um, in the car, and it sounds like really South Auckland and West Auckland have lots and lots of things in common. So today I'm 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 an adopted West Aucklander. So I'll change the title of the poem for you. Um, and yeah, it always, I, I think our suburbs, South Auckland and West Auckland, in some ways are Cinderella's, which always makes me feel quite good um, because I've always thought of, of the North Shore and Central Auckland as the ugly sisters anyway. So for this, this poem was called Bread in South Auckland, but I think I'll call it Bread in West Auckland. I drive a car that is falling apart. There is bog in the body. There is rust in the doors. Occasionally, it does not have a warrant. (laughs) Sometimes I sleep in large rooms full of people. I eat too much fried bread. I am late to meetings. I go to housie. My nose is flat. I say Rotorua. Some people think I am a bloody Maori. I have been to university. I have a student loan. I photocopy my tax returns. Most mornings I read the newspaper. I make lists of things I have to do and like to cross them off. I cut apples into quarters before I eat them. Then I cut the pips out. I put my name on things. I listen to talkback radio. I use FPOS. Some people think I am a typical Pākehā. Last week I drove through a red light. I did not slow down at a compulsory stop. I changed lanes on the motorway and did not use my indicator. When I was a boy I went to see Enter the Dragon. I took one lesson in Kung Fu. My parents made me do my homework. My brother gave me Chinese burns. I like beef and pork flavoured two minute noodles. I light incense when the house smells once. I dug a garden. Some people think I am a blasted Asian. When I, went to, when I was a boy, I learnt to swear in Samoan. I went to school in Mangari. I played rugby in bare feet. Sometimes I shop at the Otara markets. My family come from overseas. I used to work in a factory. Once I helped to cook an umu. When it is summer, I wear a lava lava. I drink pineapple juice. I like to eat Corned beef. Some people think I must be a flaming coconut. I think I'm the luckiest mongrel I know. Well, some of you are looking uh, pretty happy on the wine, and um, (laughs) this poem is called Heard It on the Grapevine. I used to go picking grapes with some of my um, Corbin friends. We used to get on the back of an old truck and go and get the grapes. And um, this is called Heard It on the Grapevine. For the colour of my eyes I wore two strings of beads, celestial blue, painstakingly thread the day linen died to ward off evil. An Arabic custom, my friend said, grapes and gossip cluttering vines raised on a low sulphur regime. Glassy ripe, inverted pyramids gently fell into a back-breaking day. Family secrets kept us going. What Francesca wore when she met Ben. How Zealandia couldn't stop biting her nails. The alchemy of Usid's orchids. Lamenting Ruby's lemons, too bitter for Tabuli this year. All the while, 
an elderly man, almost blind, picked faster than we did, his hands tracing vines like women smooth singlets over the kidneys of small, beloved children to ward off chills. Um, this poem was actually is a poem I've stolen from a conversation I had with uh, someone up in Northland, but I'm sure I could have had this consultation in West Auckland as well. I was talking to a group of people about um, a problem in medicine, and uh, and there was an old um, there was an old queer up the back of the hall that I was talking to. I was talking about iron deficiency anemia, which is very boring, so I won't go on about it. But um, this old lady took this as, a, as an excuse to talk about, ask any question about medicine. She stood up at the back of the hall, and, uh, and the poem comes from that. She said to me, boy, and as soon as she said, boy, I knew I was in big trouble. She said, boy, I've got a question for you. And the question is the title of the poem, and then the poem is sort of my f feeble attempts at answering. It's a medicine poem. She asked me if she took one pill for her heart and one pill for her hips and one pill for her chest and one pill for her blood, how come they would all know which part of her body they should go to? I explained to her that active metabolites in each pharmaceutical would adopt a spatial configuration leading to an exact interface with the receptor molecules on the cellular surfaces of the target structures involved. She told me not to bullshit her. I told her that each pill had a different shape and that each part of her body had a different shape and that her pills could only work when both these shapes could fit together. She said I had no right to talk about the shape of her body. I said that each pill was a key and that her body was 10,000 locks. She said she wasn't going to swallow that. I told her that they worked by magic. She asked me why I didn't say that in the first place. a sequence of poems and it's called Childhood Revisited. Um, <laughs> I grew up in the Te Aratu Peninsula. It was pretty rural in the 1950s and 1960s. It wasn't tar sealed. Uh, there was a Hungarian Jew, Mr Nagel, and his son still runs the factory called Nagel's or Nagel's Creation by the gin factory where my mother used to work, Seegers. And um, in those days, um, well, my father worked uh, making lingerie. He used to really em embarrass me. We'd go into Farmers in Hobson Street on a Friday night and he'd go straight to the ladies' underwear section <laughs> and pick up the underwear and put his hands through the crotch like this, testing the elastic and the, the lace and everything. I used to be totally humiliated by him. Yeah. Anyway, my, um, in those days, women could actually uh, be outworkers. That's a lot more than it is now, and you, you worked at home. And Mr Nagel was one of the first 
people out west, perhaps, I could be wrong here, to actually provide a creche for the workers. And his people laughed at him because the creche was as big as the factory. Yeah. And uh, we all decided that maybe he'd lost a lot of family in the Holocaust and maybe family was important to him and maybe that's why he built the creche. And he said, no, women work better than the children are close by. Yeah. Yeah. So, poem for an outworker. Yeah, he was, he's ahead of his time. Evenings were full of lace supplied by a local factory with a plank of wood cut to a yard and a nail marking the severing point. Snip, snip, mum sheared lace for petticoats, pus oozing from thumbnails the doctor couldn't fix. A kind of fungus, he said, keep away from detergent. Mum nodded, bought rubber gloves, dropped a glass a day. When mum went out, she painted red over everything. Nagel's lingerie. Um, you were allowed to advertise lingerie as long as the models looked like statues. That was the rule that, uh, of the time. A bit different than now. Dad worked days at the lingerie factory, nights, Saturdays too. On Sundays he helped mum slip metal clips onto shoulder straps, threepence a bundle for the mortgage. Women adjusted the clips, hoisted, lowered their petticoats to suit hems and occasions. Those days, lingerie models didn't move on television. Like a statue, they smiled, invited you to buy. Um, I used to be really jealous of this little girl who only had one dress. And I mean, it's all she had, one dress. But I just thought it was so pretty. And um, looking back, you know, in retrospect, you, you realise actually that it was poverty. Um, this is called Susie's Dress. And also, around about this time, a lot of people I knew had rheumatic fever, um, some of my cousins and some of my neighbours. And this was um, written, as I say, in retrospect. Susie's Dress. Susie wore a red party frock, summer and winter, to school. I thought it was beautiful. Lamented my hand-me-downs and mum sewing on the Singer treadle anchored by the back window overlooking the backyard. When cousin Patricia, despite a tricky heart, outgrew her lace petticoat, I bundled it to school where I transformed into a princess in the girls' toilets. Susie and I played marbles for keeps with a different Patricia from Hutley, Huntley, who had a sister called Queenie and lived with her granny next to the four square. After school, we walked home, hand in hand, past the factories, waving to Dad drinking tea in the lunchroom. When Patricia from school got rheumatic fever, I sent her a get well card, then renamed my doll Patrick in order to protect her heart. <laughs> um, I played Bull Rush with Black Power. I felt quite safe um, where I grew up. I knew there were always people to look out for me, even though I was a bit of a wimp and skinny and not so good at sports and things. Bull Rush. My club congregated at the Green Transformer. Lightning blew up one day. We delighted in the live wire signs, the possibility of burnt knickers, the way the street was ours. One afternoon, my sister smashed her head playing bull rush at its best. I thought she was a goner, punched her until her eyes came back from behind her fringe. 
She wobbled to her knees. Everyone cheered. David tagged her. You're in. <laughs> and the final one for the sequence. Um, David actually had meningitis. We had an outbreak of meningitis in my neighbourhood. And um, he had brain damage after this. And he used to do all these sorts of things. We used to rush home from school. Our mothers would make us read our journals. And then we'd go outside and watch David and his dog doing all these sorts of things, which later I realised um, that's what you put in any minder on your internet for, to stop kids getting into that. And this is just what we used to see. Anyway, David's place. When black power filled the kitchen at David's place, we squatted on the road, watching them sing. Candles on the table captured his mother's laughter. Her handwriting was as beautiful as her face. When she wrote lists for the dairy, we took turns stroking the paper. Um, I'm just I'm going to read a poem, um, another poem that I stole. Really, I tend to to steal poems off people. I don't know if I'm a real writer. Or I just copy things down. This poem um, came from my auntie who kept leaving leaving messages on my um, answer phone, and uh, I, they are such fantastic messages. Each one was a short oral poem. I thought. And so I kept them, and then Telecom rang me and said, you've got to wipe some of the messages because we can't leave any new messages on your phone. So I copied them all down and turned them into a poem. Um, It's called Messages Received Loud and Clear. My auntie didn't know. It took her a while to get used to the answer phone. To begin with, it's the first time she'd ever heard of such a thing. Anyway, it goes like this. Message received Friday, February the 9th at 7.12pm. Oi! Boy! Are you there? I don't know if he's there. Someone's there. Gee, I don't know what to do with this thing, man. Are you there, boy? Maybe someone knocked on the door. Boy. 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 It's your queer here. Hurry up. Hey, what do I do with this phone, man? I think this phone is broken. Fix your phone, man. Message received Wednesday, February the 14th at 6.21pm. Gee, ha Boy, I don't want to talk to this thing. Call me back. Did you hear me? Boy. Heck. Message received Thursday, February the 15th at 4.27pm. Boy, ten akwe, boy. Gee, what a thing. Bye. Kakite. See you later. <laughs> Message received Sunday, February the 18th at 2:29 p.m. Boy, kyoto boy. Where are you, boy? Love you. Message received Friday, February the 23rd at 3:35 p.m. Bloody hell. Where the bloody hell you been? Have you found a woman for yourself? Gee. 
big bait, big fish man, little bait, little fish. Kapai ne, bet they're not as good looking as me. Laughing. More laughing. Laughing. Noises that can't be spelt. Laughing. Kakite. Message received Thursday, March the 1st at 10.53am. Ai Maraka, you're never home. Ka hoki mai koe ka ringi mai ai, ne? When you get home, give me a call. Kia ora. Big bait, big fish, ne? Ka bye. <laughs> Message received Monday, March the 5th at 9.42am. Gee, darling, I can't make it. Sorry. If you come, I won't be here. I have to go out. There's a kai in the fridge. Make sure you do the dishes. I won't be here because I'm going out. Mind your own bloody business. <laughs> Message received Tuesday, March the 6th at 6.54pm. Boy, ko peki hoha tenei. Bye. Pehe ana koe, how are you? Moki moki ana koe, are you lonely? Kakite boy. Message received Friday, February the 9th at 5.45pm. Kia ora, boy. I just got back from the hospital. Alright. Ka nui taku tino ora e koro. I'm really well. Good report. Lovely. Uh, energetic. Ready to fight. Alright. Ka kite. Gee, I love your phone, man. <laughs> And another poem about another auntie who, uh, who uh, I try and write serious poetry, but halfway along I got all these voices around me that sort of hijacked the poem. But this is one poem I wrote for my auntie who, who passed away a couple of years ago. And um, I had a really neat friendship with her, um, one of the great friendships of my life, really. And I guess one of the things I learned is that when someone passes away, they don't always leave you. And uh, in many ways, they stay with her, us. And uh, so this is a poem for Auntie Rongo, um, and it's called There Are No Days Without You. There are no days without you. On Sunday I sleep late. The morning is barefooted. Old women wear large hats outside the front doors of churches. Inside I hear the sound of singing. On Monday the tide goes out. Later, it returns. The beach looks like a wide mouth chewing bread. At times, we hold conversations. On Tuesday, the moon appears in the afternoon like a ghost. A ball kicked over the fence by small neighbours. I see their round eyes staring at me. On Wednesday, I watch a narrow boat leave for fishing, one fern of grey water following. I think of soft plaits in long hair. On Thursday, I catch the bus into town. The man beside me turns over the pages of his newspaper. I consider the delicacy of skin. On Friday, I decide to go shopping. I wait in a long line at a counter 
to buy groceries and recognise the small bones that queue along the back of your spine. On Saturday, I rise early and walk down to the sea. A row of seagulls argue in the breeze. One leaf falls against my path as though it was carefully planned. There are no days without you. is for um, Muruai and the Gannett colony and the um, idea I had is that a lot of New Zealanders leave and go to Australia and so do the Gannets and sometimes they come back and sometimes they don't and it's for my um, cousin Patricia, the one that had rheumatic fever and uh, she actually um, died last year Migration At the edge of the wind lava has cooled to glassy black cliffs Lending scant comfort to dune grasses, struggling for permanence on humps of sand, momentarily bound by flimsy, trailing roots, exposed by currents, both wind and surf, to gannets nesting on the headland, their naked chicks clamouring blindly for fish, their white wings trimmed with black, their amber heads beacons to stragglers homing in at dusk, and juveniles testing their heads for heights before heading for Australian waters. Which reminds me of you, Patricia, my childhood cousin newly dead, from a heart that couldn't take this world, like you took yellow felt, sewed slippers for our dolls, bright as any crayoned childish sun, till rheumatic fever dimmed your ringlets. Still curling at 17 when you married, belly tight with child, a gold band on one hand, Siggy in the other. Such frail shoulders, I wondered how you could bear anything. Then one season, you crossed the Tasman with the gannets. Last I heard, you were going down, losing your sight, making a fist at living, writing poetry, blotting out the grey. Um, I'm just, just going to sort of, I guess there's been a, a tiny thread of a medical theme there. There's some rheumatic fever and, and meningitis, so um, I, I use that excuse to read a, a couple of spells from medicine. Um, um, I'm, I've been working for the last few years on a collection of poems about, about medicine, um, and for those of you who don't know, I work as a, a doctor and uh, it's a fascinating place to draw stories from, and it's also it's also got its whole, this whole language to plunder that has has really been plundered. And if you just enjoy language, it, it's good fun to play with some of the forms you find in medicine. But what I wanted to do was write some spells about medicine. Medicine's got a a grand history of the dark arts and karakia and and things like that. And I think still there's much art in medicine, um, like it or not, and. Um, so I wanted to write some spells, and um, I'm, I'm going to read two short spells, one about being born and one about dying. Um, and this first spell 
I was talking to one of the aunties up north who was a midwife and she would tell me about when babies were born, how they, how they would um, karanga the baby as it came through the birth canal. And so I thought that was a neat idea and I worked as a paediatric house surgeon and we used to stand in the corner of the room and receive the babies once it had been born. We kept away from where it was messy and wet. And <laughs> got the baby and made it cry basically, which was one of the best jobs I ever had. So, <laughs> um, A spell to be used when addressing the birth of a child. Let your first breath be the volume of small lemons. Let your second breath snap like a sail in strong wind. Let your third breath howl like a wolf at the edge of a great mountain. Let your fourth breath hoot like an owl. Let your fifth breath open slowly like the eye of a wild animal. Let your sixth breath rise like the sun. Let your seventh breath follow the tide on its way out. Let your eighth breath guide it back in. Um, and the last poem is just a recent poem I wrote to sort of match that poem. Um, I'm working in Waikato Hospital now in the intensive care department. Part of our job is to go to lots of cardiac arrests, which, um, because they don't happen on television, are not very successful. Um, I, hate, I wanted to write... I thought nothing else was working, so I might write a, a spell um, to use at the next cardiac arrest I go to. Um, maybe it's because I spend too much time writing poetry, not enough studying that that my cardiac arrests don't seem to go too successfully. I, I read... You'll be, re, you'll be reassured to know that, that a couple of nights back I read this to all the nurses working in the intensive care unit and they looked at each other and go, what the fuck are you talking about? So at least, at least they know what they're really doing. So this is a spell to be used in the event of a cardiac arrest. It's called When the Heart Stops Beating. When the heart stops beating, call to the ember in the fire growing dull. Call to the plain girl not dancing. Call to the fish at the end of its line. Call to the soldier not marching. Call to the bird singing weak in the tree. Call to the broomstick not sweeping. Call to the child still awake in the dark and call for the child still sleeping. Um, I'll finish with a love poem. Um, I think, and um, I was reading the newspaper one day, you know, in the back page sometimes of the Sunday paper, and they've got like fancy food with expensive ingredients, and it blew me down if they didn't have a recipe on how to make chips, and I thought, chips, you know, everyone knows how to make chips. Anyway, so I wrote this poem, and on one side of the paper, I've sort of got the recipe on how to make chips for fish and chips, and I, I won't read that out, and on the other side, I've got sort of like how to make love. And um, well, it's not actually a recipe. It's not step by step and join the dots. It's an expression, and you can just substitute whatever you like. You know. Anyway, newspaper recipe. 
how to make love with you. Take two angular vulnerables, melting below the hips, peeling off their day clothes, hatching before seasonal vases, tulips, irises, clouds fingering the Waitakere ranges. Our hands are equally weighted, yours burnished brown, a musician's spread, nails filed to a deliberate point, mine slightly sallow, a flexible span with knuckles looming over half-moons. Jasmine overflows the corrugated iron fence, rust-brown the scent intoxicates, we meld together, there's no stopping that. We can simmer for a long time, then the flashpoint grabs me by the throat, makes me buck, you're no lady, my mother says, just as well, that's not my ambition. <laughs> Funny the way people measure things, a cup half full, half empty, I go for what's there. When we're spent, we're gentle with each other, lay a hand over each other's heart, Explaining passion as a driving force isn't easy. Be careful, be careful, be careful. There are always consequences, my dear. Don't make me say I told you so. We work up to the boil again, again, again. How to be careful when your blood's screaming, I want you. We're well served by passion, me amour. The westerlies bring flotsam to the beach. We walk along, collecting from the tempest, an eye for beauty. Thank you. I'd like to congratulate both of the, the poets. Firstly, I think because of the wonderful selection of poetry. They're um, uh, asked to select three or four works from maybe 30 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 or whatever. It's, it's, it's quite wonderful. Secondly, the wonderful way they read them. Again, it's, uh, it was... And thirdly, because they were so wonderful together. Yes. We are now about to entrain, which I think is the verb, and make our way down to Swanson. Um, just an acknowledgement of the Henderson Railway people and the lovely Kuiper Bockenside. Um, it's been a lovely, a lovely reading. I've enjoyed this stop very much. Thank you all very much. Great audience. Yes. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.